0: Hey, folks, this is Cassie, the DM from Party Advantage, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tail of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 28 starts with a quick but very fortunate level up for Yellowfly. After that, it is straight to combat and the companions are in dire straits. The trap they had set for the weeping eye has been turned around and now they are caught in a web some of them literally surrounded and outnumbered all they can do is try to hack their way to freedom and though one of their number falls they do manage to get free of the ring of blades and by the grace of the dice gods one by one they cut down their enemies but the episode ends before the encounter is truly resolved the story will pick up today at a pause in the action What remains of each side now faces each other across a distance of a few dozen yards. On one side, having set fire to the first wagon that contains a half-dozen church members, is Suro the Mad with his two bodyguards. They've got a couple of arrows knocked and ready. Facing them and hiding behind cover are the companions, along with the NPC, Jace. It's clear from the way that the last chapter ended that no peaceful resolution will be possible, despite the Mad Mages' obviously insincere offer. Something has to give. But who will make the first move? Part 1. Day 107. Evening. Party Status Yellowfly. 14 of 26 hit points. Cole. 18 of 18. Shawnee. 16 of 16. Catsbane. 8 of 8. Spells available there are no spells available. The rays of the setting sun fell upon a gruesome tableau, as the screams of the burning men quickly dwindled and were lost in the roar of fire. The two horses, still tethered to the blazing wagon, woke from their enchanted slumber and became aware of the danger right behind them. They reared, neighing madly, and tugged at their harnesses. By now, the magical webs had burned away enough to release what was left of the wagon, an orange pyre on burning wheels. The horses bolted, dragging their awful cargo with them and leaving a trail of black smoke in their wake that rose into the air through the falling snow until it touched the vaguely defined disk of the sun. The black ribbon curled higher and higher, dissolving into a sky that bled in watercolor hues of pink and orange and yellow. The snow, indifferent to the tragedy, continued to fall upon both sides as they faced each other. Despite it, the ground around the companions was a bruised purple collar, stained with the blood of friend and foe alike. No fewer than a dozen corpses surrounded them as they huddled behind their makeshift shield. With the driver Jace, there were only five of them left of the original fourteen. Two of them were wounded, Jace badly so. The red-haired warlock and his two bodyguards, on the other hand, were almost untouched, and they had bows. Someone would have to act first. Almost as though by providence, Yellowfly found the crossbow bolt he had been looking for. He had needed to roll over one of the dead brigands to find it. He gave it to Shawnee, who fitted it into the crossbow she now held. The young rogue's face was pinched in concentration and resolve. When the weapon was ready, she looked up at Yellowfly and nodded. Come, Yellowfly, came the warlock's voice yet again. Buzz, buzz. Surely you did not think I would be fooled by something as clumsy as that. Will you send another maggot to die in your place? My men will happily kill them too, but why take the coward's way? Just let me get close to this bastard and I'll show him who I am. Snarled Yellowfly through gritted teeth. On my lead, come on. It was at that moment that Jace, now almost as pale as the snow from loss of blood, fainted. Catsbane caught him while the others broke cover and launched their attack. Entering Combat Round one. Initiative. The church. A three. The weeping eye. A six. Yeah, that makes sense. All the archers have to do is loose their arrows, which of course they do, without hesitation. Who will they fire upon? We'll make it random. One to two is Yellowfly. Three to four, Shawnee. And five to six, Cole. The rolls. A one and a five. Yellowfly breaks cover first and draws an arrow. It streaks towards him, needing a fourteen to hit. A 10 misses, when he cleverly feints right and then zags left. Cole pops up, cocking back his arm to throw his hand axe, and the second archer lets his arrow fly. He would also need a 14 to hit his target, but I'm applying a minus two penalty for Cole's partial cover. Another 10 is a miss, even without the penalty. The arrow thuds into the wooden ramp they now use as a common shield. Surrow the Mad, for his part, mutters a few arcane words, and his body becomes lined in a dark nimbus of energy. He lifts straight up into the air as though he were no longer bound by gravity. Then, spreading his arms out to either side, shoots off into the night sky like a human bolt and is quickly lost to view. The effect on his bodyguards is immediate. They exchange looks of panic while Cole throws his axe. Shawnee pops up to fire her crossbow and Yellowfly races in a curve around their flank. Cole needs a 14 to hit his target. A 13 is not good enough. His axe sails harmlessly between them and is lost in the snow. Shane, because of her dexterity bonus, only needs a 12. I've got a 4. With a twang, the bolt peels off and disappears into the falling snow. Yellowfly tries to close the distance this round, but he cannot get there in time to attack. It is round 2. Initiative. The church. A 2. The weeping eye. A 4. There is no question what the two bodyguards will do. They run as fast as their legs will carry them into the woods. Yellowfly failed to reach them in time, and both Cole and Shawne are out of missiles, which means that this combat is over. Yellowfly was about to pursue the two archers when he looked over and saw that no one else had moved from their position behind the ramp shield, though they had pushed it over and now could be seen huddling around the prone figure of Jace. He jogged over to see that they had the man positioned with his legs splayed out in front of him and his body inclined over Cole's thighs while the big man knelt behind and held him by the armpits. Catsbane had pushed Jace's hopper up and was inspecting two deep spear wounds in the man's abdomen. The young mage was trying to pack handfuls of snow against them to staunch the loss of blood as Yellowfly arrived. Catsbane looked over with an expression that spoke of urgency. This man will die if we do not act. Perhaps the elixir from Araness will help. Don't wait on my account. Give it to him without delay, said Yellowfly, joining his companions. Catsbane fumbled in his belt pouch and then brought out the tiny bottle. He unstoppered it with his teeth, and, while Yellowfly held Jace's mouth open, poured in half of its contents. A potion of healing acts just the same as the spell Cure Light Wounds. It will restore two to seven hit points to the person who drinks it. Let's see how effective it is. A four on the die means five points. That's really good. It brings Jace back up to nine of his original 16 hit points. As they continued to wipe away dark smears of blood, they saw the two wounds close on their own, then the bleeding stopped. Catsbane re the bottle and replaced it, now just half full, in his bell pouch. Jace's eyes fluttered open and he looked around at the concerned faces hovering over him. He sat up, pulled his hauberk up to his chest, and stared down at the smooth and unbroken skin in the places he had taken wounds. His mouth worked, but made no sounds, and the others laughed, mostly in relief (laughs) at his bewilderment. Cole and Shawnee stared at each other in wonder as they laughed, too. Perhaps they hadn't really believed it would work. Yellowfly grinned at his companions for a few moments before he once again grew serious. Can you walk, Jace? If we hurry, we might be able to catch them. He was looking darkly into the woods and had already risen. Jace got up too and tested his legs. They seemed to work, so he nodded and started to follow Yellowfly, who said, ''Come on then. I'd like to have a word with these two.'' ''Wait,'' said Cole. ''My axe. You'll never find it in all that snow, Cole. Just grab a weapon and let's be off.'' Cole bent over and plucked a heavy battle axe from one of the brigand corpses' dead grip. He tested the weight and seemed to find it acceptable. Then he too followed Yellowfly and Jason to the woods. Over his shoulder, Yellowfly said, "Leave the purses be for now, Shaune. Perhaps there'll be time for that later. We don't want these two to slip away from us. Come on, let's go hunt some winks." Have you ever tried to play an orc or a goblinoid and needed to homebrew almost everything, from abilities to lore and culture? Well, you won't need to anymore. In our upcoming book, you'll find new classes, sub-races, new deities, gameplay mechanics, spells, magic items, and more. You'll never need to negotiate with a DM to homebrew a dwarf beat for your Hobgoblin fighter ever again. Book of Conflict, Brutal Races will be available on Kickstarter, 30th of April, 2023. Chapter 29, Part 2, Day 107, Evening. Party status The party status is unchanged. The rays of the setting sun lanced through the mixed forest, both broken by the thousands of naked trunks and also causing snow-laden pines to glow a soft orange. The companions pushed on, following the trail that, for as long as the light would last, would as well. Catsbane noted with satisfaction that one of the men they stalked was bleeding. Every so often, they would come across a dark drop of blood in the path of disturbed snow. If they hurried, they might catch their quarry before darkness made it impossible to move safely. Of course, if they couldn't see, neither could the men of the Weeping Eye. None of them had a light source, nor food or water, nor did Shawnee have a bow. They had expected to be spending the evening at a tavern, not in a dark and dangerous wood. Yellowfly was in the lead, pushing them hard despite their recent exertions. His back was to the others, but if they could have seen his face, they wouldn't have been able to miss the worry. The shadows in the woods were growing longer by the minute. They had perhaps 30 or 40 minutes to catch up with the men they hunted. After that, it would be too dark to see, and all of them would be at the mercy of the woods. Yellowfly had no illusions. The Brentwood, even this close to Brannon, was not a safe place to travel. Still, his stubbornness did not permit him to give up. Hurry up he called over his shoulder, not too loudly. We're losing light. What are the chances that the five church members could catch the two weeping eyes, given that both sides have taken some damage and the latter have had a head start of a few minutes? If either side is equipped for a woodland trek in the middle of winter, it's the weeping eyes, who at least are dressed for spending part of the day outside. They probably have lined their boots with fur and have warm cloaks on. It's not much, but I'd say they have the edge, Remember that pursuit mechanic from before? I think it could work here too. It goes like this. I roll initiative until one side has three wins. To encourage a fast resolution, I add a modifier to the roll every round, no matter what. Average walking speed for a normal person is about 2-4 miles per hour. I'll call it 2 miles because of present conditions like weather, terrain, and light wounds. That's 1 mile every 30 minutes. So... Let's say the Weeping Eye has a quarter-mile lead. The first pair of rolls, with a plus-one modifier going to the Winks for their slightly better winter kit. Three plus-one for the Winks. A one for the church. They must have lost the trail somehow. Maybe there's a patch of ground where the snow doesn't penetrate the canopy and the tracks disappear, needing to be rediscovered while precious moments slip away. The second pair of rolls. The Winks will now get a plus-two as they pull ahead. Oh dear, a six on the die for the Winx and a one for the church. Eh, That couldn't have gone worse. The tracks have been utterly lost this time, and the sun is setting faster than expected. It'll take a miracle for them to catch up now. The third pair of rolls. The Winx will get a plus three. Here goes. I've got a pair of twos, but that makes a five versus two after modifiers. As the last remnants of the day fade into darkness, Yellowfly must concede defeat. The weeping eyes have gotten away. Worse, he and his companions are a good two miles into the Brentwood, with nothing but the ghostly shapes of trees against the darkness, in every direction. With the sun fully set, the patches of sky visible through the canopy were dark violet. The silvery three-quarter moon, suspended above their heads, looked small and far away in its nest of twinkling stardust. We should turn back, said Cole. He could feel the same thing the others felt. They were strangers here, and the woods did not welcome them. Aye, agreed Yellowfly. You're right. We'll never catch them now. If we're lucky, perhaps something that lives here will find them and give them a nasty end. As though in reply to his wish, a faint scream, definitely human, pealed out from somewhere in the darkness up ahead. Mother's oh, tears, said Shanae. That did not sound good. Another scream. This one was a little quieter. Oh, that didn't sound too far away, did it?' asked Yellowfly to the whole group. Jace shook his head. half uh, a mile, maybe less.' The next sound was a word, clear as a bell. Oh! Yellowfly started to move towards it. "'Wait,' said Shawnee. "'It could be a trap.' "'It's not a trap,' said Yellowfly, stopping and looking over his shoulder. "'Come, while well, we still have an idea of the direction.' Shawnee didn't move. "'How can you be so sure?' Because it wouldn't make sense for them to try to lure us into a trap. They've already gotten away. There's two of them and five of us. They wouldn't want us anywhere close. They'd just want to keep moving and increase their lead. Beyond that, who would want to attract whatever else lives in this woods by calling out? Well, they have called out. Doesn't that make it dangerous for us, too? Yellowfly shrugged. Of course it does. But don't you want to find out who betrayed us? They might not know, protested the young rogue. True, agreed Yellowfly, but then again, they might. He started walking in the direction from which the sounds had come, and the others followed. Shawnee isn't wrong about the Brentwood. It's a dangerous place, and all manner of fell creatures live there. That said, the screams the companions can hear are genuine. There's no ill-conceived attempt at an ambush going on they aren't caused by an encounter with an animal or a monster, however. We'll get to that soon enough. But first, we have to make a quick die roll. Normally, a situation like this would warrant as few as one wandering monster check for the whole night, or as many as one per hour. For now, I'm going to roll once for the 30 or so minutes it will take for the companions to reach the weeping eyes. I might make a second wandering monster check later on, but I think for now, the single check is appropriate. A one on a D6 means that some denizen of the Brentwood hears and decides to follow the voices. The rule. A four. Nothing comes. I think this means that the weeping eyes' cries die down to the occasional sob and gasp. It'll be enough for Yellowfly and the others to locate them by. But luckily for everyone else, at least for now, not enough to attract the attention of anything else. With the moon as their only source of light, they could see just fifteen feet in front of them. Vessel in his tears, it's dark,' whispered Shawnee. "'Watch where you step. There are a lot of roots and rocks under the snow here.' "'Shh,' scolded Yellowfly. "'Silence from now on.' They were close now, and every so often they caught the sound of another muffled cough or gasp. It was perplexing how the moonlight penetrated only so far into the darkness." Yellowfly thought they should be able to see the two men by now, but there was nothing ahead but the ghostly silver and black of tree trunks and the spaces between them. All the same, he had loosened his longsword in its scabbard as he continued, and then drew it, moving even more slowly now. <laughs> if it were not for a cough which seemed to come out of thin air just a few feet in front of him, he might not have seen it. When he did, he threw up his free hand in warning and heard the others halt behind him. He also heard Shawnee draw her blade as he looked down upon a ground that seemed blacker than a night sky. It took a minute for his brain to realize that the strange patch of ultra-darkness in front of him was a hole in the ground. Then he saw the broken sticks and branches leaning in at either side and realized it was a pit trap. Yellowfly peered carefully over the edge. He could hear a faint, wheezing breath coming from below. He could tell the pit was quite deep but it was impossible to say in the dim light just how far down it went. He motioned for the others to join him and cautioned them against the hazard when they were close. He spoke to them in a whisper. Someone has dug a pit trap here, which means there's something else nearby. Something worth protecting, a lair or a hideout, or something of value. This wasn't built in the middle of the woods for nothing. In the dim light, they could see him pointing with the tip of his sword into the pit. If we could make a fire and get some light, I'd risk trying to go down there. I think both of our friends fell in, and they don't sound too good. I don't want them to die before I can ask a few questions, but we can't try doing it blind. Much too dangerous. We're going to have to wait until dawn. It's not going to be a pleasant night, so prepare yourselves for a bad time. Sleep if you can, but not all at once. Shawnee, you get first watch. Catspain and I will take the middle. Cole, you and Jace get the third. Time for another Wandering Monster check. Since the PCs aren't moving and they have no light, I'll say that one check is enough for the night. If a Wandering encounter is indicated, I'll create my usual table with a mix of danger levels and even the slight chance for some kind of boon. Regardless of that roll, I think there should be a price to pay for spending the night outdoors without proper clothing or a fire. I'll rule that the companions will not heal the usual one hit point for the night's rest. Furthermore, until they can warm up, they'll take a minus one penalty on all rolls. Yellowfly is, of course, right to assume that the pit trap is there for a reason. But who built it? Well, we'll have to wait a bit longer to find out. For the time being, let's deal with the here and now. We've got a wandering encounter check to make. A one on a D6 indicates there is one. Here comes the roll. A three. Well, thanks Chartoon for that. It was Cole. He was shivering visibly. His teeth chattered, and his breath was a cloud of vapor. They were all huddled together under the heavy boughs of a pine tree, and the smell of the needles was sharp and fresh. This was an old woodsman's trick. The tree didn't provide much in the way of shelter, but it helped a little. Yellowfly awoke to find his body stiff. His eyelashes were frozen, as were his nose hairs. His joints protested as he sat up. Except for Cole and Jace, who were already up, the companions were doing likewise. Jace was not with them under the pine. He was a short distance away, stamping his feet to keep warm. Are they, blurted Yellowfly, suddenly moving out from under the scented green branches and over to the pit's edge. It was now clearly visible in the snow, a ten by ten foot square, twice that deep. Aye, they are. One's dead, I think. The other was still moving last I checked, Cole called after him. He had only looked once, but seeing one of the two bodyguards with his neck clearly broken reminded him too much of Tamlin, and he couldn't bear to look again. Oh, one's dead all right, confirmed Yellowfly, peering down. <sighs> broken neck, Cole managed, before a lump in his throat prevented further talk. He joined Yellowfly by the pit, but did not look in. That had a sharpened stake through the chest. Hard to survive those. Yellowfly was crouched down, squinting and trying to see if he could tell if the other man was alive. Although one missed the stakes, but... I think he's breathing. Hard to tell. Shawnee, you think you could get down there and find out? Else, I wish we'd thought to bring a rope. Or a torch," Shawnee added. One of the brigands had been holding a lit torch when the attack began, she remembered. He had thrown it aside before the melee really started. Shawnee had thought about that torch all night and wondered if the man still carried a flint and steel. She had on her gloves, but they didn't help much. In fact, she could barely feel her fingers. All the same, she said, I'll go. Give me a moment the young rogue vigorously rubbed her hands together and stamped her feet to try to get her circulation going. Nothing helped much. When she lowered herself into the pit, it was painful to grasp the nearby roots, but she did so anyway, without complaint. My minus one penalty ruling for being cold is not enough of a hindrance for this skill check. I'm increasing it to a minus five percent, the equivalent of a minus one on a d20. It still gives Shawnee an 85% chance of success. Of course, if she fails, it's a 20-foot drop onto sharpened stakes. Okay, her roll. 38. Whoever dug this pit gave no mind to the walls. They're uneven and there are plenty of protruding roots to grab onto. The trap is either poorly made or else it has not have been checked in a long time. When Shawnee reaches the bottom, she sees that there are bones on the ground. She has no idea what creature, or creatures, it belongs to, but that is not her first concern. She kneels down next to the bodyguard that was not impaled on a stake, grabs him by his tunic, and shakes him roughly. Wake up! The man did not respond. She shook him harder. Wake up, Skeg. You don't get to die yet. Shawnee slapped him hard across the face, and then he did wake up. His eyes flicked open, Suddenly, he coughed bright red blood all over his chin. <coughs> when he opened his mouth to speak, Shawnee saw his teeth were also bright red with blood. <laughs> Save me, he croaked. And I'll tell you anything you want to know. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help out, there are a bunch of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, The Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorga on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone who has supported the show. At this time, I'd like to share one of your kind reviews. This one is on the Podcast Addict app. It was posted by Ned Leeds. Ned Leeds writes, "What a perfect idea and amazing execution! If you've tuned into actual plays hoping to hear gritty, dark D&D and being disappointed by the jovial table chatter, half Tiefling, dragonborn paladins with 34 hit points at first level PCs who can never die, and more time babbling about out of character stuff, then Totem is for you. The artist uses a combination of storytelling, voice acting, great audio production, and a clean, fast, and deadly rule set to keep you listening." Thanks very much for your very kind review, Ned Leeds. What you've described is exactly the reason I started the show. It feels good to know there are folks out there who feel the same way I do. Half-tiefling dragonborn paladins, indeed. I'd like to take a moment now to thank my excellent cast. This episode is packed with talent. Back in the role of Surah the Mad is Blythe of the superb Grognard Files. Also returning is longtime cast member Kaelen, playing Catsbane, as always. There are two new voices as well. Playing Jace, the driver of the church's second wagon, is Kevin Behringer. Kevin is an actor, writer, artist, storyteller, and game designer at TumbleDye Games. Find him online at kbearcreation.com. Finally, in the role of the Weeping Eye bodyguard is Ernest Klontz. Thanks so much to each of you, Blythe, Kyellen, Kevin, and Ernest. What an awesome cast. I'm lucky to have you. If listeners want to get in touch with me, I'm at Tale on Twitter, or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like maps, art, tables, crafts, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. The story where chaos rolls. The shades of the bygone people lingers on the wind and on the lips of the survivors of this hell on earth. What stories will they tell? Echoes of Eschaton is a solo play podcast set in the world of Degenesis, a primal punk, post-apocalyptic game by Six More Vodka Studios with a simple D6 dice system and high-stakes combat which should make the clutch dice rolls all the more exciting. Join me, Coop the GM, for a new story across the ruinous landscapes of Borka the festering swamps of Franca, and the killing fields of Hyrospania. Will the characters uncover sinister plots or succumb to death a thousandfold? Find out on Echoes of Eschaton, a solo play TTRPG podcast. Listener discretion is advised.